Today's podcast is sponsored by PCRT Live, April 24th through the 30th on YouTube and Facebook. Log on AllianceLive.org. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, the casual conversation about things that count. With Carl Truman, Todd Pruitt, and Amy Bird. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin. My name's Carl Truman. I teach at Grove City College, and I'm here with my usual co-hosts, a repentant feminist and now obedient housewife, Amy Bird in Maryland, and Todd Pruitt, a pastor of the PCA Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia, and newly minted mental toughness expert. Great to be here <laughs> virtually, of course, in this time of plague with the two of you. Uh, today, we have a special guest. He's actually been on before. He might be vying with Mike Allen as the, the most yeah. returned guest, mm -hmm. which wow. may indicate either he's a very popular writer or a man of <laughs> incredibly poor judgment <laughs> or both, but, uh, well, both yes it's a real pleasure to have uh, our old friend uh, mike kruger with us mike is the president and samuel c patterson professor of new testament and early christianity at reformed theological seminary in charlotte north carolina and ordained in the presbyterian church in america and just as a, a personal point i teach every few years as an adjunct uh, at uh, rts in charlotte and it's one of my favorite Sort of pastimes because it's such a lovely campus, such a great bunch of faculty there, and such a nice uh, environment in general. So great to have you with us, Mike. Well, uh, thanks, guys. Great to be on the show again. I, I didn't realize I was vying for the title of most appearances. If I'd have known that, I might have declined the invitation. <laughs> we, but one thing we have to do then with you afterwards is we have to accidentally phone you while on air, that, thinking yes. that you're thinking that you're James White or something. That was Mike <laughs> Allen. Mike Allen did that. Yes, <laughs> we did that. Too, Got my Mike phone Allen. right here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we want to talk to you today, Mike, about this great new book you've done. I mean, Mike is, is renowned in the Reformed uh, theological world for his incisive and important contributions to the understanding of canon and scriptural authority. But he's written a, a book that's uh, at a much more popular level that I think will prove uh, very helpful to to a lot of Christians who maybe are not so much interested in the academic world, but are dealing with uh, gospel questions day-to-day -day in their churches and as they interact with, with non-Christian friends, maybe Christian friends from other churches. It's called The Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity, and it's published by uh, Cruciform Press, uh, which I think is Tim Chalice's operation. Mm -hmm. is, is that mm -hmm. correct, Mike? Yeah, that's right, Tim Chalice. Mm -hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a book of, of just 55 pages. But it's addressing 10 key questions or 10 key issues that, to be honest, many of them bubble up throughout church history, but have become particularly relevant at this current time. I think we're all aware that within the, the bounds of conservative evangelical world, even within the bounds of the, of the reformed world, uh, tensions, disagreements are beginning to grow about things such as the, the social 
role of the church, what the social impact of the gospel should be, whether Christians should hold to particular political positions or not. These are questions that press in on, on all of us as Christians at this time. And what Mike has done is he's distilled this issue down into 10, 10 basic principles that progressive Christians within the conservative evangelical world are kind of pushing mm-hmm. and has offered some very pithy and concise responses. Mike, I wonder if you could give us a little bit of background on the book before we, we dive in and look at some of the specifics. Yeah, um, this book was actually born out of a, a friend of mine who sent me an email, believe it or not. So he has a, a friend of mine in, here in Charlotte, has a mother who's not a Christian and is sort of a, a liberal Christian of sorts. And she had sent him this, this list of 10 things every Christian should believe by Richard Rohr, mm-hmm. um, who uh, everyone knows is sort of a, a spiritualist leader in the progressive movement. And he sent it to me and goes, wow, I sure wish someone could respond to these sorts of things because I hear them all the time. So I looked at the list of 10 things. I was like, wow, all in one spot. Um, mm-hmm. And so I thought this is really their 10 commandments. And so it, it birthed the idea of the book. And one of the things I, I point out to folks is that the titles of each chapter in my book, these 10 commandments are actually not my words. These are the words of, of Richard Rohr and another book by Philip Gulley. He was, he's, a, he's in effect uh, following and so this is their own sense of their identity. And so what I did in this book is I wanted to lay out these 10 tenets, if you will, to, to highlight what progressive Christians believe. And I think people, when they hear them, will resonate with them because they'll think, wait, I've heard that. Yeah. Uh, you know, my neighbor says stuff like that, or my, my mom says stuff like that. And hopefully this will equip the local church a little bit better to interact with these things. Mm-hmm. Michael, I, one of the things that occurred to me um, as, I, as I was originally reading this book when it was in its initial form uh, on your blog question that came to mind is why do these things keep coming around? It seems like every generation is imagining these very same conflicts, which shouldn't be conflicts at all and separating, for instance, Jesus as a moral example from being uh, our redeemer. Why is it that every generation seems to, to kind of resurrect these, these same ideas? No, Any thoughts on that? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question, sort of the diagnose why this keeps coming back up. I think mm-hmm. there's several reasons. One is I think several of these beliefs are sort of intuitive to the fallen man. And, and what I mean by this is we want to, for example, demonstrate our own sort of meritorious righteousness by moralistic behavior. Mm-hmm. And if you can create religion as a human religion, it's always going to tend towards moralism. Yeah. So I think that comes up again and again, just by virtue of being a fallen human. So you're going to see that throughout history. I think the other reason it keeps coming up is because most people and, and I would say both progressivists and evangelicals just don't know church history. And so they're yeah. sort of hermetically sealed off from all that's gone before. And so everyone thinks that they're original and everyone thinks that I've, I've come up with a solution for the first time for a newer, better version of Christianity. And here it is. Mm-hmm. And you realize, oh, wait a second, it's just a microwaved version of something that's come before. And so that unawareness of what's happened in the past is feeding this. So, you know, yeah. every generation seems super excited that, wow, we've really cracked the code here. And we're like, well, really not. You know, this is old news. And here we go again. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I, first, I just want to make a comment that I love how this book reads because you're so good. Like you're being a scholar um, and being able to write on an academic level the way you do. You're also very good in, in your ability to write in a popular genre to a common audience of, you know, lay people, or maybe not even that, unbelievers, you're very good, and in, in you're speaking as well, and in, in getting into the heads of your listeners, and asking the questions that, that they're wanting to ask, maybe not even knowing how to articulate that. So I just wanted to say that about you as a speaker and a writer, that I really appreciate that, and it really comes out in this book. 
Well, I appreciate that. It's my first popular level book. I actually have another one coming out next year, which is a separate conversation, but this is my first popular level book, which as I said earlier, was started really on the, in the, in the blog world. So yeah, I'm right. glad you to hear it. Well yeah. Okay. And yeah, and I also wanted to just say that um, you, you look at the table of contents here and you're seeing Jesus is the model for living more than an object for worship or the work of reconciliation should be valued over making judgments. It seems like 10 false dichotomies. <laughs> Yes. And, and they're putting the cart before the horse in a way, because uh, the thing that they're upholding as more valuable is actually something that would overflow from the more important truth about uh, who Christ is and, and what he's done. And so you kind of start your introduction there saying that this is kind of a master class in half-truths. Yes, absolutely. I thought absolutely. maybe you could talk about that a little bit. No, that's, a gr- that's, that's exactly right. I start there for a reason. Uh, part of the reason that these 10 commandments are so persuasive to people is because they're, they're partly true. Yeah. And, and progressive Christianity is really good at this. They, they don't mm-hmm. just say the opposite of mm-hmm. biblical Christianity. That would be a short conversation for most people. Right. What they're going to do is sort of latch into something you kind of wish were true or think mm-hmm. might be true or sort of sounds true. I mean, you know, we, for example, one of the ones you read, we don't want to go around you know, condemning people all the time and making judgments, you know, isn't reconciliation more important than that? And, and you're like, well, yeah. And you, you feel yourself almost agreeing with it. Mm-hmm. Um, and it sucks you in pretty effectively. And so part of the reason I wrote the book is because I feel like these things are deceptive and they're sort of tricky. And I think people are easily fooled by them. And so part of the book is to sort of unravel the, the way they're, they're doing this. They are setting up false dichotomies. It's not one or the other. Lots of these things. Well, we, we affirm both these things. You know, mm-hmm. Jesus, of course, is to be worshipped, and he is also right. a moral example. There's nothing right. wrong with saying that, but he's not just a moral example, obviously. Yeah. That yeah. reminds me a bit of something John Henry Newman says in, in the 19th century, that, that every heresy is actually a truth sort of pressed to the expense of every other truth. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so what, what you're outlining here, I suppose we could say sort of in the ethical realm, is, is a kind of general principle of heresy where often the question being asked is a good one and, yes. the, uh, and part of the answer is good it just excludes the rest what sort of general principle would you articulate mike for, for our listeners say okay uh, i i need to develop more discernment on these things i i read this stuff online wow it uh, yeah people should love each other that really grabs my imagination but what should what sort of for want of a better word intellectual or theological virtues should I develop so that when I come across something that on the surface looks very attractive and very persuasive and indeed resonates with an aspect of the truth, I'm without engaging in, in the sort of ruthless, cynical snarkiness, uh, my mind is assessing these things from a, a properly biblically balanced perspective. Are the, th- are the things that you would encourage our readers to, to do or to cultivate as, as habits of mind that would help them to do that? There's good and bad things about this. The human beings are hardwired, I think, to just assume the best about the other person uh, when they read them. And I think that's true in the theological world too. We don't want to come across as sort of, you know, curmudgeonly grumpy. Every time we see somebody, we assume they're a heretic and we're all out to sort of, you know, get our torches lit and, and, and sort of raid someone's house or something. Um, and I appreciate that sentiment and we want to make sure we have it. I think the flip side is we become sort of an overly polite, sort of deferential theological world. We're never willing to sort of ask the hard questions about the views we read. Um, and I think people just need to, to sort of realize, you know, look, you know, I, I don't have to be curmudgeonly and grumpy about everybody I read, but I also can, can withhold judgment on no more. Um, and I think there's something to be said about patiently peeling back the layers of whoever you're reading to find out what their full system is. 
Mm. I think and you'll find very quickly questions. that their full system isn't, isn't going to cohere together. Yeah. You find that there's actually contradictions in what they're saying. Correct. Um, for example, in your chapter six, encouraging the personal search is more important than group uniformity. You know, you, you highlight that the assumption there then is that God hasn't clearly revealed himself to us. So, you know, looking behind what the assumptions are of what, what's being said and, and finding those contradictions in their teaching. Yeah, another way to say that is, and I don't say this in the book, but the book is really just trying to do presuppositional apologetics mm. with whoever we're interacting with. Because you'll find that what I'm trying to do at least is unpack the coherence of the worldview I'm interacting with and show how it's, it's internally inconsistent and folds in on itself. Lots of times, you know, Roar and, and Gully are sawing off the branch they're sitting on in most of their <laughs> views. Mm -hmm. Right. And you just need to point that out to people. So they realize, oh, wait a second. You know, I say I should go around and never tell anyone they're wrong, for example. Yeah. That's, it's wrong to tell people they're wrong. But didn't I just do that? Right. As soon as I say <laughs> that, it's wrong to tell people they're wrong. Mm -hmm. um, and so it's just, it's really, you're like, oh, wait a second. As soon as you realize how, how yeah. crazy it is, it really does fall apart quickly. And it's also, uh, you know, important as we hear uh, critiques from our progressive friends and, and et cetera to evaluate the criticism uh, carefully. So for instance, as I look at these 10 commandments and as I saw them in their original form on your blog, one of the things that I realized was, you know, I grew up in, in a very conservative Southern Baptist background and I never saw those things pitted against one another. In other words, I, I heard routinely to love your neighbor. I was taught routinely to love people, to care about their soul, to care about their well-being in my very conservative upbringing. I never, now I, I have no doubt that there are some who perhaps had a different experience in maybe certain fundamentalist churches or that kind of thing. I, I understand that that does happen, but I, I know that myself and so many of my friends who were raised in, in very conservative Southern Baptist churches who could be considered fundamentalist in some ways, Never saw those things taken apart. Never saw uh, uh, Jesus not recognized as a model that we should follow ethically. I mean, that was very much affirmed along with him being affirmed as the Savior. And so, so oftentimes these critiques from progressivism aren't entirely honest in terms of the substance behind their critique. That, no, that's, that's been my experience. No, that's right. I, w I would agree with that. I think there's a, there's a selectiveness to it. So. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which let's take the worst parts of the church we find yeah. and then make that evangelicalism and then critique yeah. it. Well, okay, that'd be pretty easy to do. Yeah. And, yeah. and we don't even deny those parts are there. And one of the chapters in the book is about whether questions are more important than answers. And, you know, the churches really allow questions to be asked, hard questions. Yeah. And I think there's some churches that don't. They don't mm -hmm. want to dive into those things. And this is the half-truth thing again. They're partly right. right. Churches mm -hmm. do do that on occasion. Mm -hmm. And we need to acknowledge that. But I would argue most don't. Yeah. Yeah. Reminds me a little bit of uh, G.C. Burkow's little autobiography, uh, Half Century of Theology. At some point in that, he talks about how the, the real joy in theology comes from the, the hunt, uh, the chase, the pursuit of truth, not the actual grasping of truth. Martin Lloyd-Jones, I can't remember where, but at some point he makes a comment and he says, he, he actually cites this passage and says, that is worldliness. Hmm. Uh, uh, just as Mike was talking there about you know, questions being more important than answers, it's definitely part of our, our worldly age, I think, that there is a certain therapeutic advantage to always looking and never finding. Yeah. It isn't the gospel well, yeah. in and, and shape or form. Before we started the show, we were talking about sort of the deconversion stories out there in our culture, and there's so many of them now. But that's also one of the narratives that's woven, is that the problem with, with 
with biblical Christianity is it, it has answers. And, you know, the real right. important thing is to just ask questions. And so, you know, it's the, it's the old adage, the journey is more important than the destination, you know, sort of thing. Reminds yeah, me of a know. scene from Kung Fu where Master <laughs> Poe says to Grasshopper. Now we're really going deep. Okay. <laughs> Master Poe says to, to Grasshopper, do not seek the answers. Seek only to understand the questions. Yeah. yeah. And it <laughs> sounds good, doesn't it? It's like, wow, <laughs> so sophisticated. <laughs> David Carradine was interviewed and said, they invented that one before the show and they just thought it sounded cool. <laughs> and it does and sound knew? cool. Yeah. And who knew Brian McLaren would, would build an entire career on it? So. <laughs> I think what you're saying there about the deconversion stories and, and how that parallels is important because in the introduction, you talk about how, how these 10 principles actually came from Philip Gulley's book, If the Church Were Christian, Rediscovering the Values of Jesus. But then when we, and as you so well and so succinctly uh, address each one of these, you see that this isn't Christianity at all. Oh. Um, you know, this is pretty much the the faith of believing in ourselves and mm -hmm. looking inward. And, and there is no outside message. There, there is no good news. So, no, that's right. I mean, there's very few subtitles that are more ironic than goalies. The idea that this is yeah. recovering the values of Jesus. Mm. In fact, at every point along the way, this is the opposite of Jesus's own view on almost every one of these issues. It's stunning. Um, right. I mean, just the idea that, you know, don't worry about sex and, you know, just love people like mm -hmm. as if that's Jesus's view. I mean, right. I mean <laughs> what, what Bible are these people reading? It is yeah. really incredible. After a while, you, you realize you, you can say something's Jesus's view. And mm -hmm. what you really mean is the, the, the Jesus I wish existed. Right. Uh, the Jesus in my head has this view, not the Jesus of the Bible. Yeah. But the, these principles or commandments, you know, if you were to follow them, they're going to lead you to total despair. And yeah, and absolutely. So if, yes. if these are called, you know, principles of Christianity. And if, you know, those within uh, progressive Christianity are trying to follow these, and this is the message, it's going to lead them to total despair. Yeah. In and, fact, one of the things I've said in, in some other conversations I've had about this book is that, is that this, it's actually a very sad list. Mm -hmm. And I use the word sad intentionally, particularly the last one, uh, the 10th commandment, life mm -hmm. in this world is more important than the afterlife. I mean, I know, that's just... you know, what, that's a stunning statement. It's a tragic statement, actually. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't wear well in the middle of the coronavirus, actually. Exactly. Um, you, know, exactly. you know, the idea that now we're going to tell everyone, hey, this life's all that you got to worry about. You're like, well, mm -hmm. wait a second, I'm, I'm facing death. I better start asking some serious questions about the next life. Right. People are starting to do that. It, it, it sits well in sort of, you know, wealthy, affluent Western American Christianity right. where everybody's mm -hmm. healthy and you can talk that way, but it doesn't work in the, in the real yeah. world. You know, I'm I'm uh, I'm recording a, a sermon uh, later today to uh, to be posted for our, for our folks tomorrow. But the text is is Luke chapter thirteen one through five, the Tower of Siloam, the murdered Galilean pilgrims, and Jesus's response to repent. And one of the things that I've I've said and and that you well know is that the selective picking of of Jesus by progressive Christians because he's so nice is such an odd thing because if I had to choose between Jesus or Paul and pick the one who's nicer, I'll pick Paul every time mm. uh, because Jesus was so preoccupied in his preaching with judgment and with warnings uh, to flee the wrath of God and that this being actually uh, the height of kindness to help people to see that uh, their investment in this life, in the life to come is, is what matters so much. His message was so diametrically opposed to how progressives have co-opted him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it reminds you again that people are actually just following the Jesus in, in, in their head and the right. Jesus they wish existed. And, and of yeah. course, 
that's the whole point of, of our jobs in Christian ministry. I mean, half of what we do is just remind people of who the real <laughs> Jesus is. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. spend most of our time trying to do that. Yeah. Uh, Mike, you're a professor. You're also a seminary president. I was educated in a seminary, which at the time was progressive. All of my former professors, most of them are still teaching and they're all teaching in either um, uh, Disciples of Christ institutions or United Methodist institutions. And so I was trained under um, higher criticism. Uh, that, that hermeneutic, most of my time in synoptics classes was spent reading uh, Bultmann. Um, the chief theologian I spent time with was was Moltmann and studying him and, and the suffering of God and, and that sort of thing. And after three years of that, I, I was still an evangelical, but there were, there were things that, I mean, I was taking some hits just in my theology and, and really having to struggle through some things. But I graduated with, with guys who didn't believe anymore after three years in that seminary. As a seminary president and professor who wants to encourage uh, a good, broad, deep education, who wants to encourage inquiry and, and to delve in and, and to delve into the good, hard uh, questions and challenges, but who is also president of, of a confessional institution. How do you wrestle through that? Uh, on the one hand, inquiring these students who are going to be preaching to our congregations, pushing them into uh, to, to read guys they disagree with, to, to, to ask these hard questions, and at the same time, to know how to do that honestly, but, but also guard their confessionalism. How do you do that? How does, how does a professor and a seminary pr president encourage those two things? No, it's a great question. And anybody who runs a seminary has thought through this, or at least I hope they have. Yeah. Um, and RTS has done this. I mean, you know, step one is you make sure your faculty are in the right place. That's mm -hmm. number one. Okay. And mm -hmm. we do that in a lot of normal ways and some distinctive ways. Obviously, we're very concerned about a, an annual signing of our confessional documents so that you do it every year and you have to yeah. re-up your commitment to those. Obviously, we ask our, our professors to be ordained in, in local presbyteries, where there's accountability theologically. One of the things we have at RTS, we have no tenure which has mm -hmm. always been true from the beginning. So if a professor sort of loses his way theologically, we're not, we're not sacked with all of that that we have yeah. to deal with. But in the classroom, there's a, there's a second step, and I push this hard myself and, and ask my professors to do it. We do not hide liberal views from our students. We're not right. trying to give our students one side of the story. We're trying mm -hmm. to actually not make the mistake, the liberal school, where they yeah. only give them the, the liberal side. We're giving them our, our view, and we're giving them the other view, and we're showing why we think the other view doesn't work. And so I have a whole section of my gospels class on German higher criticism, which tends to bore my students for quite a while. And I sort of <laughs> do that intentionally just to sort of weed out the people who don't really want to be there. But right. um, it is designed to, to be, you know, look, you know, you need to understand that not everybody just thinks the gospels are great. They think right. some people think it's ridiculous and contradictory. And you need to have answers to that. So we yeah. work really hard to prepare our, our guys to deal with those, those tough questions. Yeah, I think on a smaller level, or a more condensed level, <laughs> that's what this book does. It, it mm -hmm. helps train us. And, you know, I just want to tell the listeners, this would be great for our teenagers to read. Yep. Yep. Um, it would, it would. Yep. Yeah, especially because, you know, like I have, a, you know, a senior in high school and I have a junior in college and a freshman in high school. When they leave the house and, and go, and my daughter's at a secular university, so um, these questions are going to be asked. Mm -hmm immediately as she's there. And so these are questions they're going to have to wrestle through, mm -hmm. even, you know, maybe even in their college campus ministries mm -hmm. as well, not only in the secular world. Because, I mean, really, this is a secular type of thinking. Uh, oh, absolutely. I think right. a, a small group study with high school students or college students yes. can very effectively work through yes. something like this and just yep. go one at a time, you know, and say, how are you seeing this? And here's our answers. And 
really, mm-hmm. really making sure people are inoculated. And that's a word I use a lot, inoculated against this. I was going to encourage the same thing. I mean, as you all can tell, this is not intimidating. You can put this in the hands of a high school student, of a college freshman, and say, you know, read this or, or even better yet, you know, youth ministers, youth directors, youth pastors, yeah. take your youth group through this. RUF directors, take your students um, in university through this because this is what they're going to hear. This is what's going to entice them. Because the thing that you'll find as you read these Ten Commandments is that there is a very strong, a very powerful emotional appeal mm-hmm. uh, to these things. And that's why it becomes so popular, progressivism, because it is emotionally satisfying immediately. And to help uh, students think through this, I think, would be really, really valuable. So youth ministers, college directors, RUF directors, get a hand on this and, and take your students through it. It would be very helpful to do that. Well, shall I close us up? Yes. Amy, would you do the honors? Yeah. So I... Tell, I oh, tell, tell people to give money. You mean to <laughs> Is that what you're talking about? T- t- tell pe- tell yes, people to send. Thank you, Todd. That's so kind to introduce. T- tell people Here's to send the their RTS checks. address. To RTS, Texas. exactly. <laughs> yeah, you know what? You know what? Hey, Amy, before you close, let's ask Mike Kruger how things are going. At uh, what what kind of impact this has had? The coronavirus. Yeah. What, what, what kind of impact this has had at RTS Charlotte? Well, that's a good question. Yeah, well, obviously, all joking aside, uh, obviously, classes are now all 100% online. We do emphasize to people that we're not closed, right? We haven't shut our doors. We just changed our format and our structure to accommodate the online courses. The, the good thing about our situation, I think we, we might have been better prepared than most, is that RTS is a pretty developed online platform that we've been doing for a very, very long time. Right. And so we were able to utilize and leverage that in ways that maybe most schools weren't ready to do. So that's yeah. been really helpful. We're optimistic, though, whether summer's going to happen. Of course, we'll have to wait and see, but mm-hmm. we hope to be up running again residentially for the fall. So we're hunkering down, but we're, we're positive about uh, what's coming Good. down the lane in the future. Good. It makes Good. you realize everything you take for granted, doesn't it? It Just does. being with people and, mm-hmm. and teaching and, and being a student as well. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming and talking to us today, Mike, about your book. I want to recommend to our listeners to, to go out there and buy it. So Cruciform Press has kind of this arm called Cruciform Quick. And so it really is something that you can read quickly. Like Todd was saying, it's un- under 55 pages long. You can you could read it in one sitting if you wanted to. Or, you know, you could just use each chapter, which is just a few pages, to read every day, just to read, you know, one of these commandments every day and, and, and Mike's answer. So biblical and so uh, succinct. I don't know how you did that so succinctly, Mike. <laughs> so thanks for, thanks for the resource. And um, I want to encourage our listeners to go over to our website at mortificationofspin.org. If you go over there, you can enter to win a free copy. Uh, you might be one of our lucky listeners to win a copy of the Ten Commandments of Progressive Christianity by Michael Kruger. And um, while you're there, we have our donate button. Todd reminded me to ask you guys for money. (laughs) We are listener supported and we appreciate your donations. So if you choose to do that, you can go on our website and donate as well. And we will talk to you next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. To read more on hard-hitting topics like this, visit the podcast page and blog at mortificationofspin.org, where we'll have links and other articles from Amy, Carl, and Todd. 
And while you're there, please subscribe and consider making a donation. And be sure to listen next time when Carl and Amy talk about their seminary curriculum had no church history. So as soon as they collided with the fact that, wow, our faith actually has a history and it's quite important, they had no categories to enable them to handle that other than switching from fundamentalism to Roman Catholicism. Join us then. You know, Katrina and I actually, this stay-at-home orders makes no difference to the way we've lived for two weeks now. You, rather go out, you, you can go to the shops. This is my exercise. normal life. What are you? Doing? Right. <laughs> yeah. You give me a, an order to go out. <laughs> right. Exactly. It's driving. You mean Katrina. I'm going to have to put clothes on? <laughs> what? <laughs> I I love not seeing anybody. Yeah, Katrina, exactly. Katrina, it's driving me crazy. <laughs> Join us online for the 2020 Philadelphia Conference on Reformed Theology. Log on AllianceLive.org for more about Revelation. The Sovereign Reign of the Exalted Christ, beginning Friday, April 24th at 7 p.m. You'll see inspiring and scholarly presentations by Joel Beakey, Philip Reich, and Derek Thomas, and others as you gain reformed insight into the Bible's final book. It's PCRT Live, streaming on YouTube and Facebook, April 24th through the 30th. For complete information, visit AllianceLive.org.